1: Hello and
0: welcome to awesome etiquette
1: where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration respect and honesty
0: on today's show we tackle your etiquette questions about bridal showers when everyone is far away when to unfriend friends exes all the trimmings for encore weddings and issues with organizing a meal plan for a new mom.
1: Plus, your voluminous and most excellent feedback. We totally get the zip. A handwritten etiquette salute and a PostScript segment celebrating National Cell Phone Courtesy Month. Thank you, Jacqueline Whitmore. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute.
0: I'm Lizzie Post.
1: And I'm Dan Post-Senning.
0: And I'm feeling old, Daniel. Old today.
1: Why would you be feeling old?
0: Oh, maybe because we're, I'm um, like, 150. We're
1: 150. We are
0: 150. Today is the 150th episode of Awesome Etiquette.
1: Congratulations.
0: Congratulations, cousin, and congratulations to you, our audience. Thank you so much for keeping us alive. Thank you for being here with us.
1: Some of you for the almost three years that we've been on air together, some of you who have virtually experienced those three years (laughs) by going back and listening to the archive of the show, which is. Becoming more and more an archive of our lives. What do you mean they
0: virtually (laughs) experienced it? Now I'm with you. Now I'm with you. No, it's true. It's pretty awesome. And we are so grateful to your audience that we've made it this far. First of all, yay. You all proved to us that etiquette's important and makes a difference in people's lives. We knew it, but we know it so much more through you. And that is amazing to us.
1: Once upon a time, Lizzie Post and I used to sit around in the offices at the Emily Post Institute and talk about how much we wanted to share the conversations that we get to have about etiquette every day with a larger audience, that we wanted to open the doors, throw open the doors to the Institute and see how many people we could include in that conversation and A blog was one idea, but a podcast, a question and answer podcast, really proved to be the vehicle that made that happen.
0: Absolutely. And what I'm so encouraged by and excited by is that, you know, I read all the emails that come in. And... When they say things like, I'm amazed at how hearing just about like a weekly show about consideration, respect and honesty, how that makes me want to be a nicer person to my family, to my friends, to the people that I encounter that I don't even know. To me, that gives me such hope in the world that we really can make the world a nicer place, that this wonderful thing that we believe in so much called Etiquette, Emily Post etiquette specifically, actually can make a difference to people, that it can improve your life and improve your relationships. And I am just so floored every time. I never get sick of hearing it. And every time we get one of those emails, I I buzz Dan in his office. I'm like, Dan, Dan, look, it's making a difference. Your
1: etiquette (laughs) salutes are inspiring. Your feedback is
0: illuminating.
1: And (laughs) your questions are so thoughtful and considerate.
0: And it gives us such a broader picture of what etiquette in America and around the world is. We have a lot of international listeners, which is really exciting. We, we never would have had pizza topping etiquette as an issue, right? We never would have had, I can't, I still can't believe we had never gotten that pool party question that was just in last, last week's week so. or the week before the show. Like there are so many places where etiquette is found and that we get to experience and think about and create good advice around because because of your questions and your thoughts and your ideas.
1: There's that great book, The Wisdom of Crowds. We are definitely smarter together. Yes. We are more caring together. We are more compassionate together. And we really want to thank all of you for being there with us. And we want to say that we will continue to be here. Yes. The Emily Post Institute is a five-generation family business. We sometimes move slowly, but we move deliberately and, <laughs> and with consistency forward. And yes. it is Lizzie's and my mission to continue that forward progress
0: especially with this show we have no intentions of getting rid of this show anytime soon at all just in case anyone was out there worried that their etiquette podcast was going to go away it is not it is here to stay
1: Lizzie Post was telling me the other day she oftentimes watches her favorite shows and they
0: disappear and then I cry
1: and we wanted to offer comfort to anyone out there who might have had a thought like that that we love making this show also and we look forward to continuing to make this show happen with your help and support for years to come
0: and a lot of you has asked us how you can support the show you've asked for more than just one or two ways to support the show and first we want to thank you for your generosity that is amazingly encouraging to us and we are truly grateful for it one of the ways that you can continue to help us is by doing exactly what you've been doing which is to keep participating keep listening to the show and keep sending in your questions your thoughts and feedback and your etiquette salutes we really mean it there's no show without you so please 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 keep participating in this show
1: we also ask you to spread the word and encourage others who you think might be interested in having a little awesome etiquette in their lives or who might just enjoy uh, spending an hour with this particular community each week because... It's a really great
0: community. (laughs) It helps make you think about the people around you in a more considerate and respectful and honest way. And that's a pretty amazing thing. (laughs) So
1: share the show. Yes. But also think about Actually, helping someone find the show. The podcast seems so familiar to all of us who love podcasts, but there are people out there, believe it or not, who they don't, don't listen
0: to podcasts, know how to
1: find podcasts in their iTunes, or don't have a podcast app on their phone, or
0: don't realize they already have a podcast app on their phone.
1: You can find the show on the. Emily Post website for people that aren't using mobile devices who need desktop access. You can find the show on all the major podcast apps, and we would definitely ask you to take that person who you think might be interested and show them how to find us.
0: And subscribe. You all have also been actually asking us questions that we really appreciate because they take that level of support in a different direction. So... In the coming weeks, we're going to roll out two new options so that you can help us make a better show and improve your listening experience. You asked and we listened, so we're going to make it easy for you to either make a one-time donation to the show or to subscribe monthly or annually and receive access to an ads-free version of the show.
1: The ads version of the show will always remain free and available on all of the places that you're used to finding awesome etiquette. the, The podcast apps and platforms that we've been on for the last three years. But once we're ready to rock, we'll let you know the details about where to find the show if you want to find an ads free version of the show.
0: Or if you want to make a one time donation to the show. We want to thank you again for all of the word of mouth and participation that has kept this show going for three years and that has kept it growing for three years. And we are just so grateful for that participation and support and encouragement. Happy 150th. Happy 150th, cuz.
1: Can't wait till we're doing the three hundred.
0: I know. But before we get there, we have to answer questions for today's show. So shall we get to it?
1: Let's get to some questions.
0: Awesome Etiquette is so pleased to be answering your questions on how to behave for the 150th time. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802 858 KIND. That's 802 858 5463. I love that that rhymes. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on this show. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show.
1: And our first question is, distance makes it difficult. I am getting married close to where my immediate family and I live, Nashville, which is coincidentally close to no one else. (laughs) My closest friends and members of the bridal party are at least an eight-hour drive away, and all extended family is even farther. My question is, where should I have a bridal shower, if I have one at all? Should I choose a somewhat central city and make sure no one feels obligated to travel to attend? Should I throw a handful of smaller showers myself? My concern with that is that I keep things even on each side of the family. I imagine I am not the only one with this problem. I would appreciate any help. M.
0: Oh, well, first, as you know, we want to congratulate you on your your coming wedding and marriage. That's very exciting. What a fun time in life, right, Dee?
1: Absolutely. And I dealt with this exact same question. Yes, you did. I should say Pooja dealt with this exact same question. And it is really great that you are thinking about other people's schedules and how to make this possible for other people because people are going to want to celebrate with you. And you're really wise to be thinking about how travel could impact people's ability to participate in all the ways that they're going to want to.
0: We do have some detailed thoughts. (laughs) And number one is that as the bride, you really won't be hosting these showers. So that idea of should I just host a bunch of smaller showers? No, you shouldn't. Someone else might choose to do that for you. And that would be perfectly appropriate. And you will definitely be a part of coordinating these showers. You're going to be asked for guest list information. You're going to be asked for preferences on food and drinks and games and things like that. But for the most part, someone else is truly going to be hosting hosting this shower. Um, And I would refrain from the idea of wanting to host it yourself.
1: But this is a bit of a dance that you're going to be playing with those hosts or with the host as the the guest of honor, the very important guest of honor. And in this case, as the guest of honor, who's going to be helping people make decisions about how to coordinate the shower and get everyone included, be prepared to be a good dance partner. But I I really like that idea of having the, the category of host in your mind, yeah. <laughs> firmly as belonging to someone else.
0: Yes, exactly. Okay, so thinking about your particular problem, M, is that because your guests are so widespread... A few small showers is actually a great idea. I love that you're immediately thinking of making sure that you keep it fair and even to the families. I think that's especially great if you're going to do Jack and Jill showers as well. But it's really nice when you do have, as the bride, you have that shower and your partner's family is invited to participate in that shower. It's a nice way for people to get to know each other ahead of time. It's one of those moments where you can bring people together rather than separate. That being said, you have the unique issue of his family lives somewhere else and your family lives over here so you might very well have kind of like groom's family showers or partner's family showers and you know then the bride's family showers so that that might be something that you have I would try not to invite all the same people to the same shower. This probably isn't too much of an issue for you. It is okay for you to invite those bridesmaids, even though you know they probably won't be able to come. It's more out of consideration. And hey, if one of them's able to, that's great. What a lot of people choose to do, because a lot of us don't live in the same city and almost everyone has to fly somewhere to get to these wedding events, is they save a lot of these pre-wedding parties for the week of the wedding. Um, For my best friend Estelle, we actually did that. I came down for a week before the wedding. The other bridesmaids got there, I think, five days before the wedding. And so once most of the family had arrived, we did a family and bridesmaids shower for Estelle. And that was really great because everyone actually got to participate. And I would suggest that. As like your number one way to make sure that everyone's kind of participating. But it does depend on people's travel schedules that week. And you are going to be the one knowing that. And you might have to do the detective work of calling people and finding out if that's possible. And then having your mom or sister or cousin or one of the bridesmaids host the shower that particular week.
1: So, Lizzie, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. What I'm hearing here are Please. two options. The, the week before or the separate showers in separate places. Absolutely. And it might be your guest list or your idea for what the shower is going to look like that would help you choose between those two options?
0: I think the guest list is what would make me choose, because if no family and no bridesmaids were able to come for the whole week of the wedding or even like three days before the wedding, or if the bride and her family are feeling like it's just going to be too chaotic a time to try to throw a party in that week as well, Then it would bump you to the decision of, you know what, host a family shower here and a family shower there, and maybe don't worry about a bridesmaid shower. You're going to do bachelorette with them, I bet. You're going to do like a bridesmaid's lunch with them, I bet. It's not necessary for the bridesmaids to have a shower. You would want them to participate, but they just might not be able to. There was something else I heard you kind of hint at that inspired a thought in my mind. You
1: mentioned the possibility of a Jack and Jill shower.
0: Oh, that is a possibility. And
1: I started to think about the type of shower where I I know the idea behind shower showers is that they're smaller, more intimate affairs, but we're also hearing about people having showers that do include husbands, that include couples, men and women in the family. My uncles really enjoyed coming to some of our showers. Baby shower, yeah. So if you were maybe having a shower that was going to be including – or you wanted to have a shower that was going to include those people, it might be harder to invite that many people to come a week early or
0: – Yeah, it's, it's a little dicey. You're going to have to – as Dan said, you're going to need to know your guest list and your schedule in order to really decide which method is going to be best for you. But the good parts are that you're already thinking about it, that you now have in your back pocket the advice of not to host your own. And that you have some options to throw out there with people who typically host showers, which nowadays do include mothers and sisters and brothers and immediate family members. So start coordinating with folks, see what's possible in terms of schedule and guest lists, and that'll help you guide yourself to a really great shower experience.
1: Um, we want to wish you the best as you continue with your planning and as you play that incredibly important support role to the people that are going to be hosting these events for you
0: support role as guest of honor like you know it's just the way it happens good luck em our next question is titled cleaning house social media style this question was actually posed on twitter but not too awesome etiquette uh, we were tagged in a reply to the question asker so in some ways we're kind of stealing this question Modern etiquette question. How obviously broken up does my friend have to be for me to unfollow her soon-to-be or now ex?
1: I love this question, and I love the way it found us.
0: Right? Talk about modern etiquette. <laughs> Indeed. But, hey, it's never easy when a relationship ends. It's not just the relationship. It's the friendship ties that then have to be dealt with. You know, in the, in the breakup, who gets the mutual friends? It doesn't
1: have to be a fraught experience, no. but there is definitely the potential for awkwardness and awkward moments. And social media definitely expands the potential venue for those awkward moments to occur. Big picture overarching etiquette here. You do not have to be friends on social networks with anybody. You have total control over how you participate, the choices that you make in that space. And because participation is not obligatory, you're responsible for what you do there and you get to make choices based on rules that you get to determine for yourself. So people sometimes cull social media profiles because they are changing their approach
0: how they're going to do social
1: media. People will delete accounts just because they feel like
0: it. You mean like they call friends that they're still friends with, like not just friends that they don't talk to anymore. Like it's like some people just or they remove all their family. You know, it's like
1: For all kinds of reasons, they are too number to go into right now. And you could never guess at someone's motivations for how they're going to manage their social media. So we encourage people to take responsibility for what they do, make choices that they feel comfortable with, and to not take it too personally when you find yourself on the receiving end of either a friend request or a culling.
0: Question, question, question. Is there any um, risk of like scooping someone's breakup news if you like – I don't. I don't think so because you don't get notifications when people unfriend you. Right. So it's not like Joe Schmo would wake up one morning, sign into Facebook, see like five or 10 unfollows of all his like girlfriends or boyfriends friends and then go, wait a minute, what's going on here? It's not likely. Okay, just checking. But it's possible. <laughs>
1: and I, My little
0: dramatic brain, you know.
1: <laughs> no, and, and not just dramatic brain, but b- brain that's aware of the social implications. Okay. Because there's the root etiquette. There's the core idea that absolutely you can unfriend someone when you feel the moment has occurred. Whatever yeah. inspires that moment. Maybe it's a breakup that's happened. Maybe it's an impending breakup. <laughs> However... People will notice who they are connected to in a variety of ways. And it's entirely possible that if you're part of someone's regular interactions, they might notice your absence. They might try to go look at something on your page and find that they no longer can. And if you're part of a close friend circle or a close-knit group, if that happened among several people and happened at a time when a relationship was starting to become strained, that might start to send a signal. That might start to tread into that territory that you're asking about with some good humor but is definitely, I think, where this question comes from and that it is potentially fraught or awkward if you start to broadcast or project a coming breakup before it's actually happened. So you do want to have that level of awareness. I think it's worth using your consideration.
0: Would you ask the friend, would you say, hey— I know y'all are on the outs or, you know, I'm I'm ready to, to to not be friends with Tim or, you know, Camille anymore and whoever it is that, that we're breaking up with. Would you ask your friend first before you unfriended them or because it's really your page and your choice, you just do it and you don't have to worry about communicating that to your friend?
1: I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay. You might. If you you really were saying to yourself, I should, I think that this may or may not have happened. The question is how obviously broken up does my friend have to be? (laughs) I would say why not wait till it's pretty obvious? Yeah. If there's some question in your mind, there's relatively little social cost to remaining someone's friend. Well, that's true. If there's a particular behavior that they're engaging in that's – Making you feel like, I'm just done with this. I, read I want to be done with it. Then I say, maybe follow that genius, go be for done it. With but it, yeah. that's partially your response. If you're really waiting for the clue to be there broken up so I can keep my friend list <laughs> under the 100 that I like to keep it under, <laughs> wait till it's obvious and then go ahead and do
0: it. Endings are awkward. This one doesn't have to be because you're in total control of your page. Popularity. What is it made of? How does a person get
1: to be popular with lots of people? And have a few close friends, too. Let's watch and see what makes people like one person and not another. Our next question is titled, Once, Twice, Three Times a Bride. Francie wrote in from Facebook, I've seen a lot of people who have second and third marriages with the trimmings like their first marriage. I wonder if there is an etiquette rule for getting married again. I have a family member who needed to have a pantsuit, not a dress, for her second marriage back in the 1940s.
0: Ah, uh, times have changed. Truly. <laughs> no, for real. This is one where you're right. Like, times have really changed. I'm just going to say it. We don't punish people for getting married again. Like, your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh wedding can have all the trimmings. I mean, I never want to fault someone for falling in love. Right.
1: Weddings are celebrations.
0: They're celebrations. We do not punish and tell people you can't have that because you've done this before. The only actual kind of rule or thing to, to truly consider, and this one gets a little complicated, is that for second marriages and beyond, your guest, if they attended your first marriage, is not kind of obligated to send a wedding gift. And I think that what typically happens is people are so excited that you're happy again in life, they want to send a gift.
1: If it applies practically. Yes. If the the whole purpose of a wedding gift was to help someone set up a home. Right. And
0: You did that.
1: (laughs) And the home has been set up. Maybe two people with very established homes are coming together, and in fact their challenge is going to be reducing the amount of stuff that they have. The whole idea behind how you approach that wedding gift May change. And I think that that original rule was about acknowledging that, although I think the spirit that people approach a wedding gift with today is one of wanting to celebrate. It's not just about setting up a home for someone.
0: Right. I don't think it was ever just about setting up a home for someone, though. I think that it was about setting up someone's home and celebrating, recognizing, commemorating this amazing moment in their life. And so that part of it, I think, still holds true. And it's why a lot of people still send gifts for that second, third wedding. The other thing to consider is that... Sometimes it might be someone's second or third wedding and someone else's first wedding. And you'd never want to punish that first wedding's person by being like, well, I gave a gift to the first time so you don't get one second, you know, bride or groom. Sorry. I think when it comes to the gift portion of this, if you're close to the people getting married, you send the gift. Maybe it's it's not a big expensive gift. Maybe it's more of a small and sweet and commemorative type gift. But our question asker wasn't just asking about gifts. That's kind of the most complicated part of this question. The simple part to the actual question of trimmings is that you can have all the trimmings you want. Dance to a first song with your father if you or mother, if you would like. Cutting the cake. you know, Having that big tent with all the lights and the fireworks and the pony that you ride up on. I mean, whatever it is that makes you feel married, you go for it.
1: Wear a dress any color you want. Yes,
0: exactly. Any style you want. I mean, it's really... There are all the trimmings and they are okay. I think that back in the 1940s, it was different and there was less encouragement around second and third and fourth weddings. I will tell you that when our grandmother got married for the second time after her first husband passed away in the war... She wore a dress. Uh, She didn't wear a big ball gown dress like it's popular today. And so right in this time frame, she was not wearing a pantsuit. She was wearing, it was like a skirt suit. But back then, a lot of wedding dresses were more like suits that you would just wear. And it was a really small ceremony a lot of the time. It wasn't a big flashy event.
1: I think we have that wedding album at the office. You're making me want to go dig it out and take a look.
0: We totally do. We totally do. So the big takeaway on this question is you can absolutely have all the trimmings. The one thing we would say is if it is your second or third wedding or beyond, that you not set up a gift registry, but instead simply uh, talk with folks who do ask about getting you a gift for ideas and things like that. It's more of a word of mouth spreading as opposed to a traditional registry. Francie, thanks for
1: the question. We love questions that are about traditions changing and evolving. And this question definitely gets at one that has changed and evolved over time.
0: Our next question is about organizing email issues. Lizzie and Dan, I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now and always enjoy the discussions and questions that you review. Here's my question How long do you allow for someone to read and respond to an email before you assume they are not going to? Here's the situation I am in a large class at church and I put together the sign up list for meals online using Sign Up Genius for families with new babies, etc. In this particular instance, I sent the original sign-up email out on a Thursday evening for meals the following Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. As of Sunday afternoon, only one person had signed up. So I signed up for the Wednesday slot myself just to make sure we had at least two of the three days covered. Sunday evening, I got an email from Beth saying, oh, Karen says she can do Wednesday. Can she take over that slot from you? At this point, I had already contacted the new mother and made arrangements for the drop-off on Wednesday. So I didn't want to call her again and back out and then have her re-coordinate with someone else. It felt very awkward. I told Beth, how about if Karen takes a meal, but I still take one too, just something that can be frozen and saved for another day? Then I sent a quick text to the new mom explaining that she'd be getting two drop-offs that day. What is the correct time frame for assuming someone will respond to an email? I figured if people were going to respond, all day Friday and all day Saturday and Sunday morning would be sufficient. Did I handle this correctly? Thanks for your feedback, Sarah.
1: Sarah, you rock.
0: Yeah, no kidding. This is good.
1: Really well done. Uh, Bravo on managing the system and... and being a part of a community that's taking care of people. Yeah. We really like hearing about that. I also want to offer a little mea culpa here that I am so bad about responding to emails (laughs) And we often talk about the, the inspiration that the show might provide to be a little bit better. And this is one of those moments where I am taking a little inspiration myself to be a little bit better.
0: But you're not as obsessively responsive as I am at times. OK, so
1: we sometimes talk about the fight or flight response, that when you have an emotional reaction to something, you have a tendency to either attack or retreat. I am definitely a flight response I am human. definitely a fight response human. And when I see an email that is awkward or difficult difficult or that I don't want to deal with. It goes down in my dock. It sits on my desktop. And I will admit I find it there sometimes a few days later. You should see
0: the list of those that have my name on them. I've taken it. I've I've like stopped taking offense to it.
1: (laughs) Well, and the reason that I feel bad about those emails still sitting there is, I do think there is an answer to this question. I think there is a reasonable time frame to expect a reply to an email. And I think that reasonable time frame is about a day. I think that once you get more than a business day, you start to enter that territory where if it doesn't happen, I think you can assume that you might not get one. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think you need to take offense. But I also think that if the the topic that you raised in that email um, had some sort of time frame on it, you could take that lack of response as I might not be getting a response and start to proceed, start to make your own plans. Do you really
0: think one day is enough for social world? I might go because like business, I'm 100 percent with you. If I really need an answer to something and people aren't getting back in a day, I have no problem sending a follow up email. But in the social world, I might give it maybe 48 hours. I don't know.
1: I said business I? day because yeah. I do think that you don't know someone's going to sit down at a computer. Right. You I just think that don't in know. the business world, you have a better sense for someone's going to be responsible or responsive to, five, to their emails yeah. at these times. I'm likely to catch them at their desk. Yeah. If they're going to be away from their desk longer than that and they should be responsive to emails, then they're probably going to set up some sort of automatic reply that says right. they're out of office or you on vacation. Yeah. Again, taking a little mental note, <laughs> I need to be better about this when I'm off teaching seminars. I think in that social context, you're wise to have that awareness. Like a
0: little longer. Oh, maybe. this might be a yeah.
1: weekend. This might be a Saturday. The reason that that time frame exists in business is that it's about a reasonable expectation of reply. And in this particular case, I think you're, the, the reply is very practical. It's about organizing a meal delivery that has yeah. a time frame that's coming. So I'm approaching it with a little bit more of that business level formality. It's not a business email, but it's not entirely in the social context either.
0: So what I would do in this case is that I would set my email up next time with more parameters. Give a sign up by date, kind of like an RSVP date, like you must be signed up by Sunday and have that really explicit in the email. You might even repeat it a couple times so that people get the idea. And then I would follow up with an email that reminds people to sign up before the deadline, like 24 hours before. And I might even send a final email that's a follow up. Here's what we got. the One person signed up for Monday and that was it. And then send it out and and say, this is the sign up. This is what will happen. I like your backup plan of both stepping in yourself to cover another day, but also offering people the idea of, hey, you could prepare a frozen meal and drop it off on any day that's convenient for you. The mom has let us know or something like that. You could do a little more coordination would allow you to be able to kind of have this contingency plan if people don't sign up. And I think that because this is a system your church uses on a regular basis, that you can over time, start to really make this a fine-tuned machine.
1: Sarah, I love the solution that you came up with, offering to do that frozen meal. And I think that Lizzie's suggestions are really going to model the kind of behavior that's going to make the system work better and better over time. Keep up the great work.
0: You know, writing letters is just a talent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you appreciated my help.
0: Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates and comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on the show.
1: Each week we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover.
0: Man, did we get it wrong on the lane marriage etiquette. I've never seen more emails come in than face that. I mean meat
1: palm. Yeah,
0: oh, bam, like egg on face, paper bag over face, I mean all of it. Thank you so much for uh, like introducing us to why the zipper merge is actually important and and safe and good.
1: So a week ago, we yeah. got a question about merging Manners, yes. About how one should approach a situation where there was a merge coming and there's an open lane and you're sitting there waiting in a lane that is going to be merged into and how you might feel about cars going by or whether it's appropriate to leave the lane that you're in and to, to advance – ahead of other people who are waiting before that merge happens. And we happened to miss a very recent New York Times article out about exactly this topic that introduced a concept that's been around for a while now, oh, yeah. the idea of the zipper merge and the idea that the zipper merge is the most efficient and safest way for merges to happen when lanes are being reduced from 3 to 2, 2 to 1, anytime lanes are merging in traffic.
0: I thought, wow, we came at this from such an angle of... You line up, you queue up, you get in line and wait your turn.
1: And it's rude to cut. And it's rude
0: to cut. And that when people are waiting, it's rude to zoom to the left. I mean, think about all the places that we line up in our culture. And in America, we tend to line up and you make your way in. And in other cultures, it's more of like a the whole crowd is like, making its way to the front together. I don't know if you can describe Mm -hmm. this better. I'm not doing a great description of it. And it's funny because in both instances, everyone gets served. (laughs) But what I liked about the image that the zipper merge created in my head is that it didn't make the passing or the quickly getting up closer rude in my mind. It made it efficient. And it created more of a chance to have a safe zone as you approach that merging area. Because if you've got two lanes and you've got cars lined up all the way back in two lanes, no one can be zipping by construction folks who are on the ground working. It made a lot of sense as soon as I read it.
1: The idea behind the zipper merge is that the merging happens at the point where the lanes reduce. Yes. And that the most efficient thing to do is to fill up all lanes until that point occurs. And that once you reach that, that point of constriction where the two lanes become one, That you zip up, that you alternate cars, one, other, one, other, one, other, and that there is a consistency to this, that there is an obvious rule to how it happens in that moment when it's supposed to happen, and that this actually creates the most efficient flow of traffic. It's the most efficient traffic pattern. And as Lizzie points out... By effectively filling up all lanes until you reach that moment of decision, you also remove this problem of one lane of traffic that's moving more rapidly or potentially where people are driving faster. You remove the whole question of how fair is it. You remove the <laughs> yep. emotions that come with these people are getting an advantage, these people are waiting. The, the entire process becomes one of efficiency and safety, which yes. is really important.
0: Absolutely. So we want to thank you for piping up, chiming in, and sending us awesome links and explanations about the Zipper Merge. I got a real kick out of the the variation of responses. I get such a kick. Some folks write in, they say, I'm listening to your show, and I'm talking back, and I'm going, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. And other people are going... We just wanted to introduce you to a new idea that was out there, and it was recently commented. We got the range of emotional and both fun and informative and wonderful responses from you on this. So we want to thank you for for all of it. It has now beat out every other kind of uh, controversial or wrong answer we've ever given. We got the most feedback on this one, and we loved it.
1: So thank you for breaking all records. You can send us your next thoughts, comments, or updates. Please do keep them coming to Etiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. No matter which side of the wheel we're on, we are prone to stand up for our rights. Think about it the next time you have the choice. Be courteous and smart. Don't be dead right.
0: So it's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is about National Cell Phone Courtesy Month, which I believe comes to us courtesy of Jacqueline Whitmore, right? She started this.
1: She absolutely did. Let's take a little moment to to give a golf clap and a nod to a fellow etiquette expert, etiquette consultant who's been in this business for some time now. Jacqueline Whitmore started the National Cell Phone Courtesy Month awareness campaign back in 2002. So, awesome. she was definitely on the cutting edge, the, the very front edge of awareness about cell phone courtesy and that was a time before the iPhone had been introduced. This was in the early days of the cell phone when people were just starting to realize the impact that it was going to have in people's lives.
0: You said 2002? Yes. Okay. So I was one, one year into college.
1: <laughs> I know. This
0: is no, when you think
1: back, where was I, I in 2002? And what did my phone look like in 2002? And I was it a probably, baby. <laughs> if it flipped open, it was very advanced. Very
0: cool. At that I could time. text, maybe. Was texting a thing when I was in college? I don't think so yet. It came at the end of college, I think.
1: You might have had a plan where you paid by the minute. Yeah.
0: Oh, ouch. <laughs> Regardless, it has evolved over time. And Dan, you have some really great tips for us today on cell phone courtesy.
1: Absolutely. So I really think about cell phone courtesy in two ways. And there are all kinds of great manuals and tip sheets about how to use these devices. There are definitely standards that have emerged over the last 15 years that I think have been pretty well understood broadly by the public that uses these devices. But I tend to divide my advice into two categories. One, I think about behavior with the device. And two, I think about behavior on that phone. And I really want to focus our discussion today on behavior with that device, how you behave when you've got that device on your person or in your hand. And the first thing that I like to emphasize that it's important to take control. It's important to dehabituate your use of your cell phone. The famous Russian scientist Pavlov who did his experiment with dogs where he would feed a dog, ring a bell, measure salvation response, or ring a bell, feed a dog, measure salvation response. And it didn't take very long before he could ring that bell and he didn't need to feed the dog and he could measure that salvation response. It's our... Positive
0: reinforcement!
1: And and biological programming happens so quickly. And we carry these devices. They ring and they chime. We interact and we get a little endorphin rush. They ring and they chime. We interact with people we care about or get information that interest us and all of a sudden we get a little endorphin rush and it doesn't take very long before you're hearing that device ring when it's not ringing in anticipation of that endorphin rush or when that device rings and you start to start to feel those pleasure sensors tingling and you find yourself reaching for it before you even think about what you're doing.
0: Someone's thinking of me. I exist.
1: (laughs) It can be really difficult. It's a constant process of staying aware that is required of all of us to use these devices politely and appropriately. We are so often in the company of others when these devices are asking for our attention and is a a fundamental tenet of good cell phone courtesy that we keep our attention primarily on the people that we're with. And there are going to be appropriate uses for a device when you're in the company of others. There is going to be or there are going to be times when It's going to be important that you take that call or you get that information. It's going to determine which restaurant you go to, what movie you're going to go see, or what you should pick up on your way home that day. These are amazing, miraculous devices. But that primacy of the person that you're with, the importance of them being acknowledged, can't be overstated. And the habitual use of the phone can start to diminish that. So...
0: Practice putting it away? I don't know.
1: If you're in a situation where... The use of a phone would be completely inappropriate. Take control of your life. Turn it off. Leave it behind. Don't even take it with you into that church service, house of worship, uh, restaurant. Carve out those times in your life when you're really going to focus on the people that you're with and make that your absolutely primary concern. If you are with other people, don't subject a captive audience to your conversation. Try to move away from other people to take a call or to engage in a conversation.
0: Can I make a note about that? Please. We have gotten way too comfortable with having those conversations in public. Like it's definitely become – I feel like ubiquitous, like people are so used to hearing that one sided conversation now. It's like when when you're getting on the plane and all the way up until the moment those cell phones have to be off, someone is chattering away. And it just it's interesting to see how five years ago that person was really looked at as rude. And nowadays it's kind of like meh, whatever. But give yourself that kind of like aspirational check and say, do I really want to be that person who's using every second they can to subject the people around me to half of a conversation I try to say, you know what, as soon as I'm in a crowded place, that's where I'm stopping that conversation.
1: If you are in a situation where you're going to take that call and you're in the company of others, do your best to minimize the impact. Keep that call as short as possible. Talk quietly. Magic words are magic. Excuse yourself. Say to the person that you're with or the person sitting next to you, pardon me.
0: This won't be long.
1: This won't be long. Show a little awareness about yourself and about the people that you're with. It will go a long way. It will transform that situation, that perception of your behavior as being rude. Something close to 90% of us say we've witnessed a person using a cell phone rudely recently. A number much closer to 10% will admit to engaging in that kind of behavior themselves. This is territory we can all be better with. I like to take the opportunity – Of National Cell Phone Courtesy Month to remind myself that I can be a little bit better about this and that's going to make the world a slightly better place.
0: You can remind me too whenever you need to. Well, we like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world. And that can come in so many forms. And today's form arrived via mail, snail mail, in a lovely light blue and gold card. Jessica from Tacoma hand wrote a salute for her mother to us. Dear Lizzie and Dan, Hello, and thanks for your show. I'd like to salute my mom, Carol, for always assuming best intentions when encountering apparent rudeness. Instead of taking immediate offense, my mom tries to think of why the other person might have thought they were doing the right thing, or at least not realized they were doing the wrong thing. Here's an example. My mom volunteers for her local farmer's market, which cannot allow dogs because of the city's food service laws. Instead of scolding people who bring dogs, my mom starts by welcoming them to the market and asking if it's their first visit. Usually they say, yes, how did you know? And this lets her respond with, your cute pup here was my tip off. Even though the market is outside, due to city and food service laws, unfortunately, dogs aren't permitted. As usual, my mom finds the kindest way to address a problem. Best mom ever. Sincerely, Jessica in Tacoma.
1: Jessica, thank you so much for your salute. We love hearing about it and we loved seeing the stationery that you wrote to us on.
0: Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you so much to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com.
1: Or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463.
0: On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post.
1: And I'm at Daniel underscore Post.
0: On Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute.
1: You can help us out. Please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review.
0: Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Thanks, Chris.
1: Chris.
0: Hey, that sounds good. I'll call you next week. Will you?
1: Thanks
0: so much. I had loads of fun. So did I.